My father's grandfather's jazz collection included a record by the Mills Brothers. And on that record, the Mills Brothers sang about you always, the one you love, the one you shouldn't hurt at all. You always break the sweetest rose and crush it while the petals fall. So if I hurt your heart last night, it's because you're the one I love most of all. Sounds like a bad apology. But there's some truth to it. Uh, sometimes the ones that are closest to us, the ones that we shouldn't hurt at all, they are the ones that we hurt. As Paul continues here in the book of Colossians to talk about the relationship within the church at Colossae, he begins to transition from relationships within the church to some of our more personal relationships and how we ought to interact with one another with as Christians in these relationships. And so what we need to do this morning is contemplate the relationships that Paul talks about. He's going to talk about family relationships, and he's going to talk about slave-master relationships. And that seems odd to us, but we're going to look at that. Then we're going to think about the implication of these things for Christians living today. So let's begin. We want to back up a little bit into where we were last week and begin in chapter 3 in verse 17, and begin to notice Paul's transition from the general relationships in the church to some of these more specific relationships that we have in life. And notice how he prefaces this by saying in verse 17 how we ought to conduct our lives generally. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. We touched on this briefly last week, the idea of everything we ought to do. We ought to do it uh, in a way that brings glory to God. or We ought to do it in the name of the Lord. You would never do something, theoretically, in the name of the Lord that's going to shame the Lord. You're going to do things that are right. You're going to do things that bring glory to His name. But Paul says not only what you do, but also in word. Now remember, he's been to these Christians about the things that they say to each other, the attitude that they ought to have towards one another in the church. And so he says, not just what you do, but what you say. Can you imagine that conversation between a man and his wife for a romantic relationship where one of the partners says, it's not what you said, it's how you said it. Have you ever heard that phrase before? It's not just what you do, it's what you say. And maybe how you say it. And so Paul transitioned talking about the church in general to some specific relations. We're going to start off looking at the first four verses which talk about family relationships. Notice the first relationship, verse 18 and 19. He says, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Colossians 3, verses 18 through 19 is a very truncated or shortened version of Ephesians chapter 5, isn't it? And we've looked at Ephesians chapter 5 in the past. It's interesting that some of the language here is a little bit different in this abbreviated version that Paul uses. He says, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 
Over in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Wives, be subject to your husbands in all things as to the Lord. But here he says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Literally, according to the standard of what is proper in the Lord. God has a, a, a program, an environment for the family. And it's popular in American culture today. But he does want men to lead their families, and he does want wives to be willing to submit their own desires and ideas and follow the lead of their husbands. And yet at the same time, he says, verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Remember in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, husbands, cher love your wives as Christ loved the church and cherished her and nourished her. So they ought to cherish and nourish their wives as their own bodies. And here he abbreviates that by saying, do not be embittered against them. Only place in Scripture precise Greek word use uh, for embitter. What against somebody? You to be embittered against somebody. The message seems to be much more positive. Cherish her, nourish her, give her what she needs, love her. And here he says, don't be embittered against her. Don't don't be cruel to her. I suppose you might say. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19. Some of the Pharisees there wanted to trap Jesus, and they said, uh, which, which way is it? Which school of thinking is correct? Is it true that a man can divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus says, look, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives because you were so cruel to them. But that's not the way God intended it. Matthew chapter 19. Husbands should not be embittered to their wives. I, I knew a, a, a man in the church several years ago, and he used to always say, she shops, she shops, therefore it's off to work I go. And a lot of men take that attitude. Now, he said it as kind of a joke, and they seem to have a good relationship, but that kind of stuck in my mind. And why would you say that to people? Why would you say that about your wife in agreeing to other people? And if you're the wife and you're sitting at that dinner table when that comment's made, how do you feel? On a separate occasion, I knew a man, wasn't a member of the church, but he was an airline pilot. And he was asked a question one time, if you go anywhere in the world, where would you go and who would you take? And he said, well, I wouldn't take my wife. And again, he was joking, but she was sitting right there with him. I just thought, what, what, how is she, what is she thinking? How is she feeling at this moment? As she hears those words. That's not the way a man is to treat his wife. Do not be embittered uh, against your wife. And we put this again with Ephesians. Paul says, cherish her, nourish her. Love her as Christ loved the church. And again, how much did Christ love the church? He stretched out his arms and died for the church. And then Paul begins to look at the parenting relationship and the child-rearing relationship. He says, children, be obedient to your parents in all things. Not just the things that you want. Not just the things that uh, you think are good things to follow your parents, but it says, oh, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing 
to the Lord. This is what God wants. He wants you to be obedient to your parents. But then he says, verse 21, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will, lose, will not lose heart. In Ephesians chapter 6, he says, Children, obey your parents, for this is right. And then he says, Fathers, do not uh, provoke your children. And he uses two different terms here in 21, as he does in Ephesians 6 and verse 4. Here it means uh, to provoke, uh, just generally speaking. And the passage in Ephesians 6, verse 4, means to stir to anger, to wrath. So you get the picture of a man who is so mean to his kids that he's provoking them to anger. This isn't a dad who has to spank his kid. So don't, kid, you don't get to use this verse and say, oh, I got so mad because you spanked me. You know, that's not what this is saying. This is the type of dad that will go into a room and, and look at the room, and, and it's not perfect, and so he just gets all the clothes and just throws them on the floor. Uh, or maybe uh, your Legos are still out because you haven't put them away. And so he gets all your Legos and dumps them out, and you've got a Lego creation, and you just kick them everywhere, okay? And, and, and just does things to be mean. Okay? There are dads like that. There are dads that are abusive. And Christian dads are not to be that type of a dad. And so Paul talks about these relationships. And you can see these are the types of relationships. This is what the Mills brothers are talking about. You always hurt the one you love, the one you shouldn't hurt at all. And sometimes in our personal relationships, that's how we act. Paul says for the Christian family, that's not the way it ought to be. You've got to have love for each other. You've got to respect each other, the implications of these passages. Children ought to obey their dad. They're parents, and yet parents should not treat their kids in such a mean-hearted way that your kids think there's no reason for me to Christian. There's no reason for me to be a godly person. There's no reason for me to do this, and they get spurred to extreme anger. Husbands ought to love their wives, and wives ought to be willing to follow the lead that their husbands provide. So you have that family relationship, but then you have this next relationship. And Paul seems to spend more time here than he does in some other places. And it seems odd to us because it's the slave-master relationship. And we don't like to talk about slavery because in American culture, uh, we know what slavery means. And we go back to, in our minds and history to American slavery, which was cruel and oppressive. And I suspect if you're a Greek slave, you might have found that to be cruel and oppressive as well. But there were some differences. But notice what Paul says here, verse 22. He says, Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with a service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. And so Paul says, look, if you are a slave, and you have a master, you need to keep in mind that the work that you do is really for God. Think about how your mindset changes when that's your point of view. 
this guy, man, this master, this slave driver, and if I could get that guy behind the, around the corner. But your mind changes when you say, you know what, even though he's cruel, even though he's not doing what's right, even though he's not treating me fairly or justly, I'm working for God. And so rather than doing my work half-heartedly or doing a poor job to get back at this guy, I'm going to work hard because I know that God's name is attached to me. And because of that, people are going to glorify God because of the way I do my work. They're going to say, look at this person. This person is always working hard. This person is always doing things the way he ought to do it and give glory to God. And God's going to worry about taking care of the other guys. And you don't have to worry about it. And really in life, we encounter those types of things all the time, don't we? Where our first impulse is, I'm really going to get this person because of the nastiness with which they treated me. I don't have to act that way. I don't have to think that way. God sees it. God's going to take care of it. Sooner or later. And if it's later, it's probably going to be worse. Right? Because we all know what that means. And so, I go for it. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to do the best job I can because my outlook is I'm serving God. Now, as Paul writes this, he has a unique circumstance because the companion letter that Paul's writing that goes along with Colossians is the letter to Philemon, which is about his slave and isthmus. Look what Paul says, chapter 4, and verse 9. And with him, that is Tychius, who he mentions in verse 7, and with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Onesimus and Tychius are taking this letter to the church at Colossae. But if you turn over to the book of Philemon, that church, we find out, meets in the home of Philemon. And Onesimus apparently is a runaway slave. Notice what Paul says to Philemon in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in, the imprison in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of, by your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? And Paul goes on to, to say, look, I want you to release him. I could order you, order you to do it, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just hoping you're going to do the right thing. But here's the point. Onesimus evidently was a runaway slave. Paul says he was useless to you. But now he has come to me. Remember, Epaphras, who's also of that church, has come to Paul. So there are some interesting connections that it would be nice to be able to peer into and find out how everything rolled out. 
But Epaphras is with Paul. Epaphras started the church in Colossae. And now here comes Onesimus. And apparently Onesimus was not a Christian because Paul says, he is begotten, my begotten son, in my imprisonment. So he finds Paul and studies with Paul while Paul's in prison in Rome, becomes a Christian, and now Paul says, okay, Onesimus, now you got to go back. And you got to serve Philemon. But I'm going to ask Philemon to release you so that you can come back and serve me here or be by my side here. So when we come back to Colossians chapter 3, as Paul's writing this, he's not just writing vaguely about slaves. He has some specific things in mind as he writes this church. He spends more time here than I believe he does in Ephesians as he talks about the slave-master relationship. And we're reminded of the story of Hagar in Genesis chapter 16, where Hagar is mistreated by Sarai, because now Hagar, the handmaid, has this slave, and she's got a little smart mouth with Sarai, because now she has upper hand, because she has the kid, and Sarai doesn't. And so Sarah mistreats her, and she runs away. And the angel of God appears to her in the wilderness, and he says, Hagar, I want you to know I'm going to take care of this child, but guess what? I want you to go back and submit to Sarai. Man, that's tough. Folks, when we talk about submission today, the people of our culture today says, no way, it's all about you, what you want. Have it your way. You don't have to submit to anybody. When you look in Scripture, mm -mm. it's tough for us because we live in an independent culture. Not that way with God. God wants us to submit to those in authority. And sometimes there are others in authority in our lives, and we don't like them, and sometimes they're mean, and sometimes they're cruel. And God says, I'll take care of them. You leave that to me. But I want you to glorify me by showing how you can be submissive. We get to the book of Hebrews. And we read about the son who was obedient to the point of death. And Jesus, the text says, learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Jesus was God. God on earth, and yet he suffered in his flesh because he was obedient by dying on the cross. We submit ourselves to God. Folks, we have got to learn to be submissive. Submissive to God. Submissive to those that God has put in positions of authority. Now, let's come back to the text, Colossians chapter 4. And Paul says, as we've already mentioned in verse 22, your outlook needs to be, I am serving in sincerity with God. Verse 22, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who are merely pleased men. Don't just put on a show like you are doing what you ought to do, but really do it, and do it with sincerity. Do it with gladness, fearing the Lord. 
And whatever you do, verse 23, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Do your work as if you are working for God. Your motivation ought to be, I want to please God. And if you do that, you're going to hit a higher standard than working for men. And sometimes it's tough. But Paul says, as Christians, as Christian slaves, we need to do. Verse 24, he says, know that your reward is from the Lord. And verse 25, by the way, he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done. You don't have to worry about it. God's going to take care of it. God sees it. God's going to take care of it. And then notice what God says to the masters. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. What's the idea there? Yeah, you can mistreat your slaves. You can be cruel to them. But you better keep in the back of your mind that you're going to answer to God. God's going to judge you. God's going to treat you in judgment. And if you're a Christian and you're a master, that means you need to treat your slaves with fairness and with justice. Many people question today, why does the Bible not say slavery is bad? Why didn't Paul say that Christians ought to rise up and, and get rid of slavery because it was cruel and unjust? You know there had been lots of slave revolts in the Roman Empire, even before this. They say that as much as one-fifth of Rome was slaves. Might have even been higher than that. And Spartacus was a famous slave that led a revolt. Guess what happened to all those guys? They died. And it was a bloodbath. In Greek society of the day, you could become a slave in any number of ways. You could become a slave because you were a foreigner in a competing army that had been captured and enslaved. You could become a slave by court order as criminal punishment. And those guys usually had to work in salt mines and, and did their work like that. You could become a slave because your parents sold you as a slave. You could become a slave because you sold yourself into slavery. And their economy is different than ours. And so there are people that were hungry and starving and had no way to care for themselves or their families. And so they would indenture themselves to a wealthy person who would give them food and shelter, and clothing. Now, it wasn't fancy clothing, but clothing. And all of a sudden, you didn't have anything up, and you didn't have any work, because this patron was taking care of you. Now, the flip side of that was they expected something from you. In Roman society, most bureaucrats running the government were slaves. Talk to your slaves. Most of the time that were indentured to wealthy individuals. Sorry. Still are, yeah. Uh, the reality is, we are all slaves. Have you ever thought of that? Because in that mindset, a person was trading his labor to be cared for by somebody else's means. And you know what we do today? 
we trade our labor for somebody else's needs. Now, the difference is we have much more freedom, right? Because we take, we say, I, I'm going to labor for you for eight hours, and you're going to give me this much of your means, and then I get to go and do with that whatever I want. In Greek or Roman culture, that wasn't the case. You stayed in that person's household. You were considered a person, uh, a member of that person's household. And they had slaves for everything. And some people even paid their slaves a small salary, and they could use that money to buy themselves out of slavery at some point, or to buy their children out of slavery at some point. That's much different than American slavery that we had uh, in our history. But that brings us to our third point, and that is how do we as Christians see ourselves today? We're not slaves in the same sense that the Greco-Roman Greco society had slaves, but we are very similar in the fact that we trade our labor for somebody's income, and we call that our income. And so as we look at what Paul's saying here to slaves, I often think of those who are employed as the slaves and those who are employers as the masters. But guess what? Even if you are self-employed, who becomes your master? The people that you trade a service for to a certain extent. Now you have varying degrees of freedom in those relationships, but all of us fit in one of those categories. So what does Paul say to us? He says, as Christian individuals, Obey those in authority. Follow your supervisor. Listen to your manager. Listen to those in authority over you. Not just as a, as a man pleaser. Not just someone that's, uh, that's uh, a brown noser, so to speak, as the phrase goes. A kiss up, Paul says. But work with sincerity. And work as if you are working with God. In verse 23, do your work heartily. You work hard. Whatever your job is, you work hard. Do it heartily. As if you're serving the Lord. You know what really bugs me? When I'm driving down the road and there's construction. And what do you see? You've got to stand or drive at five miles an hour for four miles, and then you get to one little spot where there's some construction going on. There's like five dudes, and one of them's doing the rest of them just seem to be looking. Right? Have you ever experienced that? Now, I know if I were in the construction business, I might understand that better. But doesn't that frustrate you? Have you ever gone to an office, and you're working in an office somewhere, and there's one guy that all he does is drink coffee and shoot the breeze with everyone else in the office? And a lot of times he's the one that's most popular, but he doesn't get anything done. Go to work. Some of you have heard the story that I've told about my grandfather. When we would cut wood and we would stack it and we would sell the ricks of wood. And he would always tell me, you feel that rick of wood as tight as you can. Don't be one of these individuals that gets the wood and just kind of lays it out there slowly. Or, or loosely. If someone's going to buy a rick of wood from you, you make sure that it is as solid as possible and you be a man of integrity. That's how we ought to do our work. Work 
hard at it. Do the best job that you can do at it. And if you're a master, if you're a business owner, if you're a supervisor, if you're a person in authority, don't be mean and cruel and hateful towards your employees, but treat them with fairness and kindness and with justice. If a guy comes in late to work one time, it's no big deal, right, most of the time. If you're coming in late, 10 minutes late to work every day, you probably deserve to get fired. We have a problem in our culture and society today with people who don't know what it is to work in, under those in authority, who don't want to know what it's like for a boss to say, I need you to go over here and do this. I'm not going to clean that toilet. I'm too good to clean the toilet. I'm sorry. But sometimes that's the place where you have to start. Now, one last thought for the modern Christian. I hate to say it, but school's about to start. And this passage applies to young people who carry a faith in God, a belief in God. When you do your homework, you do the best job that you can. You work hardly because you're working not for your mom or for the teacher or even for your dad. You're working for God. If God's checking your math homework, have you done the best that you can? Have you studied your spelling words like you really are supposed to study them? Are you behaving in class the way you ought to be behaving in class? Not messing around, talking with your friends, goofing off, but really being diligent and working heartily. You see, this isn't just for people at work. This is for you too. Glorify God. Make your teacher say, man, what makes Adeline such a good student in class? that she would behave so well. What makes Pierce so quiet in class so that he listens intently? How is Caitlin able to get up every morning and just sit there and do her schoolwork at home? How are Jack and James able to do their work so diligently? It's because, it's because you're not working for yourself or for your parents or for your teacher, but for God. When we are all our lives that way, people are going to look at us and they're going to be able to give glory to God and say, that's what it is to be a Christian. They're serious, they're loving, they're kind, and they are sincere. And they're someone that you can trust. And I don't have to hurt them with my words. If you're here this morning and you're needing the prayers of the church or you have other needs, whatever those needs are, won't you come? Together we stand and sing.